Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today's episode, we're going to be going back to the 70s. As I was looking at what movies were available for us to watch versus the movies I haven't been able to see yet that I want to watch in terms of new movies. Yeah, I wasn't going to watch Saltburn. I have no interest in Napoleon. There's some other movies from 2023 that I have plans for in later series, so I didn't want to do those now. And so I decided to go into my letterboxed watch list, uh, sort it by average rating, and look for some really highly rated movies that we've never seen. Because I figured that would be a better use of our time than watching some like mediocre crap that's come out in the last few months. So this is going to be an episode that two people are looking to? I don't care. <laughs> I was not going to watch like <laughs> meme movies. I'm not doing meme movies. Uh, so... We will be talking about Elaine Mays, Mikey, and Nikki. But first, we will be delving into all that jazz. Uh, the last feature, or no, the second to last feature film from Bob Fosse. So when he's not planning for his upcoming stage musical or working on his Hollywood film, choreographer slash director Joe Gideon, played by Roy Scheider, is popping pills and sleeping with a seemingly endless line of women. The physical and mental stress begins to take a toll on the ragged perfectionist. Soon he must decide whether or not his nonstop work schedule and hedonistic lifestyle are worth risking his life. The film is a semi-autobiographical tale written and directed by the legendary Bob Fosse. Uh, so, Ariana, what are your initial thoughts on all that jazz? I feel as if all that jazz is the most successful American version of eight and a half yeah yeah because uh, like after having watched that Fellini movie and I understood like the obsession of it and then diving into the internet finding out that there had been American remakes which for a movie that is heavily Italian as it is deeply Italian as it is it's I don't think it could translate well yeah, I think you can't remake eight and a half. You have to take the concept of eight and a half and then apply that to whoever's making the yes. film. Yes, and to for Bob Fosse to do it, I think it worked very well, except <clears throat> it's hard. It's this interesting thing where it's not as if he's showing much compassion for himself, but there's also this difference between eight and a half where he kind of comes out a changed man of sorts of ju or just being like Fellini I like redoes his priorities by the yes. end of that movie yeah Fosse doesn't um isn't capable of it considering the end of the film but it's also like he it's not as if in real life he changed himself not really no he just was like this is who I am this is what's worked and nobody's really stopping me so why should I yeah it's a little background on Bob Fosse for anybody listening who may not know who he is uh, he was an actor, dancer, choreographer, filmmaker. Uh, he choreographed Broadway plays and musicals like Sweet Charity, Damn Yankees. I think Chicago is probably his most well-known uh, work. He also directed films. He directed the film adaptation of Cabaret. He directed uh, Lenny, which was based on a Broadway stage play, I believe, that he directed. It wasn't a musical. Oh, an interesting fact about that is the studio made him cast Dustin Hoffman 
And in all that jazz, the actor who's playing Lenny Bruce, essentially in the movie within a movie, was the actor who originated the role on Broadway during Fosse's uh, production. So for his his autobiographical movie, he brought back the actor he rather would have had in that role. <laughs> okay. Um, he is, I would think there's few people in the modern era that you can point to that have influenced an art form more immediately than Bob Fosse, like during their lifetime kind of a thing. He invented a lot of jazz styling in Broadway dance. Yeah. So he's clearly borrowing from black culture and things like that, but then filtering it through this kind of Broadway production scale lens. Yeah. Uh, he is introduced the side shuffle. Okay. Which the name, you, you can kind of imagine that move. Yeah. He introduced uh, jazz hands. Yes, I remember you telling me that. And his trademark was the use of hats in dance, which is because he started balding prematurely. He started incorporating hats into his act. And then that just became like a useful prop for the dancers to use kind of thing, like a cane or something. Yeah. So it's kind of a variation on the top hat cane, but bringing it into like a different type of style. Uh, his wife, Gwen Verdon, was also a great contributor to uh a shared body of work, but often didn't get the uh, praise. praise that he did. Uh, she remained married to him until he died in 1987 from a heart attack. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, but they separated in the early seventies and lived completely different lives for the rest of those years. And he would carry on having relationships with other women, though he was still having relationships with other women while they were married. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing. He cheated incessantly, which is a big part of this movie. <clears throat> um, and so while he was editing Lenny, he had a heart attack and had to have open heart surgery. And that's where this movie came from. Uh, so all of this happened to him, except for the part where he dies at the end. Yeah. Uh, and that's the interpretive part. Uh, so now having some background information on Bob Fosse, his life, the elements that are present in the movie and the things that bled over. What? How do you see the movie now thinking about these I things? mean, I, part of me is almost like I should have sat down, done a lot, um, a little bit more research on him, but it just seemed like from the little that I did before this, watching this, he was just a womanizer. I don't know how he would treat people because there was like, well, I mean, like Anne Reinking, who was one of his lovers in real life and plays essentially a version of herself in this movie, mm -hmm. like adored him, even though he cheated on her. I yeah. think there were people that saw him as two different people. He was Bob Fosse, uh, the person you had a relationship with, but there was Bob Fosse, the artist. Yeah. And so it was Bob Fosse, the artist was who they admired. Like he was very yeah. good at what he did. And it just, it. Like, I, I mean, I could be corrected. Like, it just, there was never like, oh my God, he was awful to work with. Or it's just, he was a womanizer through and through. And therefore he was using his position to have sex with multiple people. Well, I mean, he clearly did. Like, yeah. And he even admits to that in the movie. And like, in the movie, you're just starting to feel like this, like, he doesn't soften it. In fact, he's kind of like, yeah, I'm an asshole. I don't know about that. How do you view it? Did he soften it or did he? I feel that Roy Scheider played the Fosse stand-in, uh, Joe Gideon, with an awful lot of warmth. Yeah. 
And I'm not exactly sure based on what I've read about Bob Fosse if that persona was the persona that people were encountering on a day-to-day basis with him. Yeah. He seemed like he was a very demanding person with his art. Uh and that he pushed the people that worked for him a lot to the point of like they were exhausted and broken down. I think he drove his own life at a pace that he clearly was going to end up dead at a young age, right? That was just kind of an inevitability. Mm-hmm. And so he just kind of behaved in a way that pushed other people to do the same. Like he expected almost the same level of energy. Of intensity. When they aren't even getting the same level of pay. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and I think it was in his mind, I think he was paid a lot of money. He was a very rich man. Yeah. But I think he also thought, well, this is what you do if you want the art to be good. Yeah. And he couldn't understand why somebody wouldn't want the art to be the best it was, even if it cost them like physical or mental health. Yeah. Um. What did you think of, I want to talk about sort of Gideon. He's three different things in this movie, I would yeah. say. Uh, so Gideon as a partner in Ter- the movie. He's terrible. He's terrible. Because he still has a like working relationship with his ex-wife in the movie played by uh, Funnily enough, an actress named Leland Palmer, who plays Audrey. Uh, what did you think of the dynamic between those two characters in the movie? I thought it was very interesting because I didn't know that it was his ex-wife at the beginning. Like, we're getting the assumptions that, okay, the little girl that's in the theater watching the auditions. Like, you're like, okay, she has to be someone's kid. Oh, it's his kid. I thought, like, maybe he was, like, she was a friend or a nanny. Because, like, they don't really talk much to each other. They just give each other looks. Well, in front of the daughter. Yeah. And- I think maybe it was because they they were so contentious. It was just sort of the lead. We're not going to address each other that much in front of our child because yeah. we don't want her to witness. And, like, fights. the daughter has a moment because he's, like, canceling their plans because uh, he has to work. So she's pouting. And even the mother's just kind of like, I am not intervening. I am not arguing. This is like what you always do. Yes. Yeah. And it's just, I can't do anything about this except have my daughter be put down and feel bad about the situation. Put down like a dog? Put yeah, down. put down like a dog. Um, and it's an interesting thing that the once when they do finally have a conversation, how... There is a respect for each other, but that contempt is still there. Well, the respect is only within the art. Yes. Outside of the art, there really is. Like I, I mean, did... she doesn't want him to die, I think, because he is the father of her child. And she's and she... also in the production of one of the, uh, like, and shows. There is, like, the, the human level of caring about someone you've yeah. been around for a long time. And it's time. this interesting thing of, like, how she is shown to be like a great dancer where it's this interesting thing like he's not choreographing like he's not doing anything for her well they're both for the side dance well they're both aging yeah and so she is wanting a role for an, a character who is considerably younger than her yeah and he, it's not spoken until she brings it up that he doesn't have confidence in her ability to play that young of a character yeah, especially because it's on stage. You're not going to see her up close or be makeup and stuff like that. But it's. But I don't think he thinks she has the physical ability to continue working at the level that he expects. I think that's yeah. the the what we're kind of communicated. Um, 
so like I do like I like the fact that there is that anger towards each other that isn't displayed in a full volume like you know shouting a la you know marriage story but it's like the it's like they've had these conversations over and over again like that shouting match happened a few years ago yes yeah. and then when she finally sees like the stuff that he's been doing with his dancers she breaks down into tears to just be like it was fucking great you goddamn bastard yeah like she because she, it would be comforting if he failed, because then she could go, oh, he's not that great. Or it's also, but the thing is, he doesn't. He is very good at what at choreography. He's just very good at it. Almost like saying, like, okay, no, this makes sense. Like, why you don't spend as much time with your daughter as you should? Why you've been running around like all crazy, making everyone worried and stressed out, only for it to be something beautiful to create that has been created. He's sacrificing his life for the art, uh, and. That's one of the interesting things about Bob Fosse is that he did have he came of age at a time where prescriptions for quote unquote pep pills were pretty common. Just another word for amphetamines. Yeah. So in the 19, you know, late 40s into the 50s, this is back when quaaludes were still legal, mm-hmm. not necessarily pep pills, but kind of what you would take in the evening. Uh, and so that clearly contributes to his work ethic, I think, yeah. is the drug addiction. And yeah. he, I like the way it's brought up in the film. It's, and it's where Fosse, you can tell he does have a strong cinematic eye and an understanding that do not have your character say the thing, show the thing and show the thing in an interesting way. Yeah. So there's this, uh, and it's also in dance, there's, I mean, I am clearly no dance <laughs> expert, but one of the things I just figured out from, you know, being an observer is repetition, right? Yeah. And so in the film, he incorporates that in his morning routine. Yeah. The film starts with it, and we just keep cycling back to it every few scenes. Letting you know the passage of time of how many like shower scenes that we have, how many pills he's taken. But, and, but I think it's also to emphasize the amount of pills that he was taking yeah. that led up to the heart attack. Or it's also the time that he spent <clears throat> with his daughter that they're both dancing, and he pops one in his mouth, and his daughter's like, what is that? And he's like, it's a mint. And she's like, can I have one? And she, he's like, no, you wouldn't like it. Yeah. And, and that's when the conversations cut off. And that's the only time we I think we see him pop a pill outside of his morning routine, but it also informs us that he was probably popping these pills all throughout the day. Yeah. Because at the time this takes place, he's setting up the choreography for a Broadway show that's going to be like a high production, like big budget thing, while also editing um, Lenny for, uh, I think it was Paramount Pictures put that out. And so he's going across town all day from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to sleep. And then, like, after, like, done calling up somebody to go to his house and have sex. Well, like, he has Kate, played by Anne Reinking, who I knew I had recognized her. And then when I looked her up, I think probably not the role she's the proudest of, but she was in um, Annie as Daddy Warbucks. I forget the character's name, but, like, secretary assistant, the one who kind of welcomes Annie into the estate. Uh, And she was, from what I've read, like, her big... Broadway role was Chicago mm-hmm. uh, working with Fosse. Uh, what did you think of her performance in the film? I thought it was a pretty good performance. I think it was one of those performances that at the beginning of the film you would not know if you were to show me like the first two scenes that she was in I would not believe you. you said okay now it's going to get really heavily into dance. 
<laughs> like, I'd be like, okay, what? It, like, it makes sense why she was put in that role afterwards. Um, we don't getting in as a partner. What about getting in as a father? <clears throat> he's loving, but he's upset. Like, he loves his daughter, but she. How do you know he loves her? Um, I think it's just like the like the final performance of like that performance. It's like when he's having those thoughts in the midst of like his heart. Sort of the, the great recovery. fantasy showstopper yes, number like, before he it's died. Sort of yeah. like you're gonna miss your daughter, and it's also just he does try to spend time with her, but it's always cut short. It's never like you never get this feeling like oh he spent the whole weekend with her like he well, spends only short amount of time early in the movie we see a scene where she's hanging out with him at the dance studio yeah and she's there so he can like use the mirrors to try to like put together some of his ideas with another dancer yeah and then her mom comes to pick her up and she's so desperately clinging to him she doesn't want to leave but like he makes her leave because he doesn't want the mom to be mad at him yeah but you get the sense like that's and then the other time we see is when she's over at his apartment with kate yes and they put together like a little dance number kind of thing uh it's interesting the way dance is a love language in this community this family yeah. that he's kind of put together because that's i mean at the end of it is it's a, an incredibly dysfunctional family yes in which the only way they're able to show each other love is through performance yeah, and it's this interesting thing that, for example, when he has an argument with Kate and she calls someone on the phone and she sets up a date with this person and she's kind of flirting with them on the phone. And this is only like she's doing it to punish or like get a She catches him in bed with someone else. Yeah, she's trying to get a reaction out of him. And so his response is to ask her, like, is this person straight or gay? And it's this interesting thing where when he says gay, it's not, he's not being mean. He's not ridiculing them. It's sort of like him acknowledging like in like my career, most people would assume I am gay, but I am not. And that's fine. He's also being territorial. Yeah, he's being <laughs> territorial. But it's this interesting thing of it being like, it's that admission of sorts of by him being a dancer other men don't find him to be that much of a threat, but he knows, like... I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to get in a fist fight with Bob Fosse. No. kick my fucking ass. Yeah, but it's sort <laughs> right? of like... He's in really like good shape. That, like, being a dancer makes you, like, feminine. And it's a, and that thing also links back to afterwards when he's recovering in the hospital, when he, the, you know, the comedian is talking to him and telling him, like, you are kind of feminine, like you do have feminine qualities. Well, he uses you. like a uh, a homosexual slur yes. to talk about him, but it is. But I think for Bob Fosse was by embracing his femininity that allowed him to have access to women's sexuality. Yes, because like yeah. women would find that in a sense non threatening, right? And other men would assume, well, I don't have to go after him because he's like. He's obviously not going to be into the woman, but it's just like he just had more access to them. But he also abused that access yes, like tremendously. Did. So it what it showed was even men who embrace their femininity can still be, have toxic masculinity. Because he, yeah. like, he was also taking advantage of like his status in the company. Like mm -hmm. he is the head. He's going to hire you or he's going to fire you. Well, and he like the opening scene where they're doing like the auditions. 
And he goes up to one dancer and just asks her if they have her phone number written down. Well, it's like he sees her name and he's like, is that your home phone number? And it's clear that he's going to call her and she understands that. But then there's also that thing where you step back and you realize, uh, oh, this is just a regular practice in this industry, right? Yeah. Producers, choreographers, like, and it was probably across both men and women, right? Depending, Like there's even a producer who starts making eyes with one of the male dancers and like sprays some banaca in his throat and i love how his co-producer like hits him in the shoulder and goes knock it off because it's like this is probably not the first time that the guys tried to hook up with a male dancer in a show yeah they were and it's also kind of like thing. this interesting thing that once he starts casting he's like i know which women i want to cast the men will cast later because his eyes have been on them the whole time yeah and, and when he knows that there's the portion of the audience that he's thinking about are going to be looking at those women because he knows even the gay men are going to be looking at the yeah. women too right and like, like the like the composer is like cursing along with the producers being like you left me without a fucking soprano again you can't do this to me the one you pick doesn't know how to sing and he's just like it's fine i i can't make her into a great dancer but i can make her into a good dancer that's all that matters <laughs> well, what's interesting is how little interest uh joe gideon has in the singing part of the musical like it's there but and in his fantasies people sing but the singing is not the emphasis of like where his eye is his eye is on bodies yes and i think that's one thing the film does really well is it perfectly communicates the physicality of this art form through film Mm -hmm. uh which is another reason why i feel like fossey had a great cinematic eye is because he knew how to film bodies. Yes. And like he knew when to do a close up of part of a body. He knew when to show the whole body. He knew when to focus on the hand, on the foot, on a movement. There were, were great scenes in the dance studio where he does a lot of like pan whips, where you'll see a scene and then the camera whips around and it's all in camera. Like this is not like there's a cut there. It's so choreographed in that there was a mark for that camera to hit. Uh, to create a sense that like movement had happened, time had happened, and now we were focused on another corner of the dance studio. And then we pan whip again to another corner of the studio. Yeah. And it was just very well paced. One of the things I feel like about this film, and this ties into my third point of wonder about Gideon as an artist, I think that uh, Fosse's interpretation of the musical has a lot of different, and dance and musicals has a lot of different flavors and i think for all that jazz he was going for a sense of total emotional and physical exhaustion by the end of the movie like this was not dance as a celebration completely this wasn't dance as a seduction completely this was like dance as a body spasming on a hospital bed as it's the life is being drained from it, right? Like that's especially yeah. that final sequence is just yeah. relentless. It won't stop. Well, I think about also when he is choreographed, uh, like doing the dance stuff with like the group that he's working with. Um, he does have an assistant that is like showing examples of stuff, and he gets to the point that he's like, "I don't like what we've done. I'm changing it." And so he gives a warning to the producers and uh, like how he's changed it. But it's the fact that like he is going like, go, 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 draining these people. The woman that he had sex with is like in tears because she's like, I'm not a great dancer. And he's like, I can just make you a good dancer, but just follow my. And she's like, 
well, will you stop yelling at me? And she's like, no, I'm yeah. going to yell at you. And it's that's the Gideon as an artist and Fosse as an artist was brutal because like he had a standard that killed him and he yeah. was holding all the people around him to that same standard. Yeah, and so like he changes the whole production. And it's this interesting thing that like the producers are like shrinking to the point like the the dancers start like removing articles of clothes. One dancer is completely topless, only like in her underwear, writhing around. Well, and it is just it's like, a, an incredibly sexually charged number. Yes, yeah. And they're just like the producers are like, sex, why does it always have to be with sex with this guy? Well, then one guy where there go the families. Yeah, and it is, but it is this thing of him understanding like how can it not go to sex when you have good looking people like press upon each other and then like only emphasizing certain looseness about it well the flashback to his start in show business was as a tap dancer at a burlesque house yes where he's fondled by the older female performers where he goes out on stage and then laughed at during his performance because he's like prematurely ejaculated on himself um yeah it's i and i also like the use of uh jessica lang in this film as the angel of death yeah i was gonna ask you about that love the fact that it it's it's hinted at like but it's they never say it obviously but i like the fact that when he has like the first heart attack (laughs) or like the severeness (laughs) of it and he's kind of like no no, because he's been flirting with her the whole time. What's she's seduced? Death is seducing him. Yeah, and it's that's what's by being pushing himself so much, he's being seduced by and falling into the arms of a woman that will destroy him. Yeah, because I like the fact that she's like, "Oh, you're cute," but she's it's never judgmental. She's sort of like, "I will be the last woman that you have." Uh, what do you think of, because it's listed as a musical fantasy, and I definitely get the fantasy part now having seen it, in that the fantasy is in his head, and his headspace is represented by kind of like a dressing room and performance space Yeah, that's full of like props and junk. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end, there's like uh, stage equipment that moves. Yeah. There's like seats for an audience. Uh, what did you think of the choice to make that where the inner monologues of the character were happening. I I mean, it made sense because I felt it almost like was saying like, even in death, he can't stop thinking about work. Well, I was thinking that like having autism, right? Like I have very, lots of fixations and there's this thing where you realize like, oh, when I wake up, there's this conversation going on in my head that doesn't stop until I go to sleep. Yeah. And so in that way, I kind of related to that of, oh, his fixation was dance. Like there was nothing else in his life that really mattered as much as that. Yeah. So in his head, that's all that was happening all the time was choreography, was thinking about old performances, was thinking about performances he might do in the future, was connecting all of the memories in his life to this art that he devoted himself to. I really like the fact that it just turns out to be the dancers are his girlfriend, Kate, his ex-wife, uh like audrey mm-hmm. and then his daughter and then there's like a few pop-up of a few, a few people that come out afterwards but those are like the main the th- three main women in his th- life yeah. three main women in his life and then the fact that there is this other version of him that's looking at him on the hospital bed it's like okay what do you think are we is that good and like he's like well you didn't say your line 
Well, he's finally mm-hmm. pushing himself. Yeah. He's finally. And so I think that's what made sense to me is, oh, that's why he pushes them is that's what's going on in his head all the time is director Fosse yelling at human being Fosse to move quicker, do it better, like nail your marks, all these things. Uh, I also think it's interesting because it's a movie about bodies, but it's a movie about the strength and the frailty of a body. Yes. Uh, and which is something that like makes so much sense based on dance is it's about how strong a body can be, but how easily a body can break. Yeah. And the sequences where the open heart surgery is happening, I feel like they filmed an actual open heart surgery. Oh yeah. That was pretty. I, I don't know how they could have recreated that with special effects in 1979. I said I looked away because I was just like, I'm too uncomfortable yeah. with this. I mean, you saw like the <laughs> organs moving and yeah. right. And like, even then, there's movement right there's dance the body has a dance right the yeah. heartbeat there's a rhythm the heartbeat is a rhythm and what happened is his rhythm broke yeah and when his rhythm broke he stopped dancing he stopped being able to do all those things yeah uh very interesting movie i do love the little subplot with john lithgow as the rival director oh yeah which doesn't really have i mean i guess it's implied that he's probably going to direct the show now that joe dies yeah but i think it was it's it's a piece of the film that you could easily have cut out of the movie and it wouldn't have made a difference I've, to the plot. But it's so it's Lithgow's just so good in that role. Yes, He's I so like funny. Film, like Ben, uh, what was it? Vereen. Yeah. As the TV host. Yes, I really liked it because a few times like they were like uh, that he would always say the same thing over and over again. And when finally he was clearly based on some kind of host or MC yeah, they knew of. But right? I did like, love like the moment that he's supposed to introduce like. Uh, joe after it being like oh my good friend a good humanitarian a a great entertainer and he ends up saying like a so-so entertainer not really a humanitarian and i don't know who the fuck this guy is yeah it was (laughs) like like the whole thing with that host was every time he'd bring a guest on it was lauding them with praise but then what we're seeing is because it's not really that guy right that's another representation of joe yeah and it shows you the self-loathing that Joe has for himself by going, if I was ever on that show, he's not going to introduce me with all these favorable things. He's going to talk about what an awful person I am. Yeah. Because that's who I am kind of a thing. Uh, would you recommend all that jazz to just a general audience? Yeah, I would. I I think it is something that is in, entirely entertaining. I do love that you're gonna of, hate the guy. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, I do love the fact that you get lulled into this, like the musical stuff. It's like the last twenty minutes of that yeah. movie are just like it is like he a fist fight with the audience. He is just dancing so relentlessly yeah. and beating you down. It was good. I liked it a lot. Nick is living in a downtown hotel room, alone, desperate, and afraid that someone is going to kill him. He calls on his old friend Mikey for help. This is Mikey and Nikki, a film written and directed by Elaine May, uh, and starring uh, John Cassavetes as Nikki and Peter Falk as Mikey. Uh, So, Ariana, just generally, what were your thoughts on Mikey and Nikki? I thought it was a well-acted well just a generally well done movie that does feel like there are improv elements about it but somehow it still works 
and in the hands of someone else with other actors, I would not trust it. Well, I'll give you some background and the audience as well on Elaine May, uh, who is like Bob Fosse, is a person everyone should know who they are. Uh, so Elaine May is still alive. She is 91 years old. Uh, I think she came back to do some acting in like 2016 on a TV show or something. Uh, but for the most part is retired. Uh, she hasn't directed anything since 1987. Uh, so she was a performer who became part of the improvisational duo Nichols and May with fellow director Mike Nichols, who would go on to direct movies like uh, The Graduate, The Birdcage, Primary Colors, a lot of different movies. Um, her filmmaking career started with a film called A New Leaf, which I have not seen, uh, which stars Walter Matthau and herself. Uh, then she made The Heartbreak Kid, which her intent through a lot of her film career was to play with genres. So The Heartbreak Kid was her take on a romantic comedy by making it completely dark and the main yes. character completely unlikable. If you've seen the remake of The Heartbreak Kid with Ben Stiller, that is a piece of shit. It is. They try to make his character like redeemable and likable. Yeah, you the original Elaine May Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd and uh, Elaine May's own daughter Jeannie Berlin uh, is fantastic. If you are someone who likes awkward dark comedy, yeah. like it will it will do it. Uh, this was her next film, Mikey and Nikki, and she wanted to make a gangster picture, but she wanted to do it in her own way using a lot of the improvisational. Uh, techniques and skills that she'd built as a performer herself. Um, this film did not do well. It ran over budget and over schedule considerably. Uh, Paramount was very mad at her. This fact I thought was insane. She shot 1.4 million feet of film to record this which is more film than was used to shoot gone with the wind wow there were moments where she would just let the camera roll for hours there was a, a story from the set where at one point cassavetes and falk walk away and they walk off set and someone went to go shut the camera off and she yelled at them no they might come back <laughs> and then just let it run on nothing um paramount took away final cut from her and did not tell her until it was too late. The film premiered around Christmas 1976, was a complete box office bomb. She would not direct another movie for a decade. And that was when she did Ishtar with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, which is considered one of the worst films ever made. It's one of those I need to go revisit it because once again, it's her take on an adventure comedy and like a Bob Hope kind of oh. movie where they play like, like, uh, stand-up comedians kind of like vaudeville kind of guys yeah, 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 yeah. and they go to the middle east to the fictional country of ishtar i've never seen it the whole way through yeah because i remember you showed me the trailers i, I always remember my friend brent in college said something it's one of those like oh it's someone thing someone else will always remember he was standing outside the movie theater after he and his brother and went to see paul thomas anderson's boogie nights and he said a gay couple came out and one of the men said to the other well, that's the worst movie I've seen since Ishtar. And so that's what I always think of when I hear Elaine May's Ishtar come up. Which is was, like Boogie Nights is considered a It's classic. a great movie, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's 
Her career is very interesting, and she seemed like someone who was very dedicated to improvisation. Even though she didn't direct a lot of movies, she was a screenwriter and did a lot of uh, work on other screenplays. Uh, she wrote scripts for Warren Beatty's uh, adaptation of Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. She also worked with Mike Nichols a lot on the scripts for the movies he did. So she wrote, helped write the screenplay for The Birdcage and for Primary Colors. Okay. Uh, so she she had a lot of work in writing, and it seemed like Nichols always made sure that she had work, and she was his favorite collaborator, very clearly. Yeah. So knowing all this about Mikey and Nikki, we also have to talk about John Cassavetes and Peter Falk. Okay. Because in many ways, this reminds me of a John Cassavetes movie. Yeah. He's also... Like May, New York born and bred, very much someone who grew up on the streets of New York, very much into improvisational moments in their art and like just letting things happen and exploring where things go. Mm-hmm. I know you, you've previously seen uh, A Woman Under the Influence. I did a series on the blog like before we got married on Cassavetes where I watched Wait, through. the blog was around before we got married? Well, you were you were around. <laughs> we just weren't married. <laughs> Uh, it was when we were doing our long distance relationship. And so I was watching a lot of movies by myself. Thankfully, it's not something I ever have to do anymore. I subject you to them. Uh, <laughs> Tortured. Um, I feel like I'm giving you a feast. No, it is a like feast. almost Most every night. It's yeah. like, it's, here, it's a gourmet meal. Yeah, a lot of times you'll warn me like around dinner time. You're like, well, get ready for this one. And I'll just be like, <laughs> if we do watch a bad movie, you don't go into it not knowing that. Uh, so. Cassavetes uh, and Falk, you've seen their work together before in a different capacity in A Woman Under the Influence. Did you see a connection between that movie and this movie at all? No. Stylistically, anything? I, I feel like stylistically, there's something about the camera work that's a little bit similar. Because when you <laughs> you told me like she wasted so much film, and there's some shots that are a little like blurry, or like feel a little bit kind of like whiplash as if like they forced the camera up suddenly. Well, it's kind of like a William Friedkin who came from a documentary background. And yeah. then when he shot uh, like uh, the French Connection and The Exorcist, he did not tell the cinematographer where the actors were going to go because he wanted it to create that energy of there was something happening and we don't really know where where like yeah. what's where everyone's going to end up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you know the connection or? Do uh, no, I was just thinking a stylistic connection because I think Cassavetti's work is very much improvisational and it's about letting emotions kind of boil to the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see that to a certain degree, especially like when you think about the choices that were made with certain actors. Um, in particular, when it comes to Peter Falk, I don't feel like Cassavetti's himself was as sporadic as Falk is I don't know about that okay you tell me uh, well I would say Cassavetti's work typically concerns not always but often toxic masculinity you know I mean, like, and I but I think that Cassavetti's is there to provoke Falk that's that character's job yeah is to because it's the character who is in the most distress is not Nikki who is worried that the mob is going to kill him, it's Mikey. Because yeah. Mikey has more knowledge of the situation and the people that are hunting Nikki. And so he, the film is about Mikey's crisis point. Yeah, I was thinking more about like 
directing wise because when i think about um that movie that we watched with his wife a woman under the influence a yeah. woman under the influence it feels a little bit more tidy even though you find later on that this was a director that didn't believe about like getting a lease or getting like being like hey i can film here he, he would show up he'd be like i would I say this is probably a more formalized production because like paramount was involved yes cassavetti's movies were always independent yeah. And then he would go through like United Artists or whoever to get them released. So I think Cassavetes, when he's in charge of a film, it feels chaotic. This movie feels chaotic, but there is a shape, there is a structure yes. to it. We're yeah. we do we're going somewhere. Yeah. And I and I was also just comparing like acting styles because what it's supposed to be like woman under the influence. Uh the main female role is supposed to be the one that's more on the chaotic side versus like her husband, which is played by Peter Falk. And then this film, Peter Falk is at times endearing, at other times manic. Disgusting. And disgusting. And then the same can be said for Nikki later on when you start unfolding their relationship. Because like you do start to wonder, like, well, why are they friends? And it's just sort of like this, uh, like... Again, the unfolding of, oh, they've known each other for over 30 years. They grew up together. But there's also a, they were aware of each other when they were younger, but they didn't necessarily know each other. Because there's that scene in the cemetery where Mikey talks about his little brother, who all his hair fell out, and then like a day later he died. Yeah. And how Nikki knew of his brother and like talks about, oh yeah, the guy's in the neighborhood. And Mikey wasn't aware of all this happening. So I think it was... They didn't develop a friendship until they were older, but they were aware of each other's presence in the neighborhood that they lived in. Well, I think they also kind of knew each other as kids because the way that, uh, like, Nikki gives it is like, remember, we called your brother Baldy. And it's as if Mikey goes, oh, fuck, I didn't, like, I forgot that you were there. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right in that, and that it's a movie where it's clearly a film about the end of a friendship. Yeah, no matter it's like, like they the were specifics. Tangled up with each other for so long that you forgot that that person is there. Because we've had that we talk about like memories of just being like starting to blur that certain and like years start to come together. So like Mikey at times is like has forgotten like how it like how much it is that like Nikki knew because he was like oh well I I wish that my mother was alive I wish that your mother was alive I wish your father was alive. I wish your aunt da, da da was like, and I wish Izzy was alive. And that is the moment that you see like Mikey just kind of like, what, what? He kind of softens to Nikki. Yeah, because yeah. it's just sort of like afterwards when it's linked back when um, Mikey's talking to his wife, he like explains his brother and he was like, I was crazy about him. Like, I love this kid. And just saying this really tragic story relating to the watch and it is this understanding that even though this person, Nikki, has caused him harm, and at part he hates him, he loves him at the same time. Yeah, it's a very complex male relationship Yeah, that I don't think we get in a, I mean, you, you will probably find it maybe like an independent film, and even then it's very sparse right now in America. I feel like so much American film even movies that would fall into this category feel very contrived and there's a 
just such a deep authenticity about this film and these characters. Like you get the sense that these characters were alive before the camera started rolling. Yes. And that when the credits roll, at least one of them's life is going to keep going on. Yeah. It's forever like shaken, but that this is a slice out of these people's existence, mm -hmm. which is something that only a really good filmmaker and screenwriter can get across. Yeah. Because in the span of two hours, you make me feel like these are real people. And yeah. this, and you're just like filming a situation that happened. And it's also just, again, it is like the love that has been lost between these two people. Like you, at first when you're kind of like, okay, Nikki called uh Mikey over. This must be like his very like close, reliable friend. And not. Yeah. And it turns out that like Mikey's like, I haven't spoken to you in such a long fucking time. And he's like, well, you just stopped calling. Yeah, I stopped calling three months ago because you wouldn't return my calls. And it's just like how. Well, the more we unpack Nikki's family. Yeah. How he is married but separated has a five-month-old baby yeah we also tie that up with i stopped haven't talked to you in three months so it's this child is born and then all of a sudden nikki becomes manic yeah this idea that he would be responsible in his life yeah because uh, then later we meet annie who is uh his girlfriend who he, we he keeps possibly he keeps inferring she's a sex worker is it annie or is it Nellie? It's, it's Nellie. Nellie. It's Nellie. He keeps acting like she is a sex worker, right? Mm -hmm. But she keeps denying that. And it was hard for me to understand, like, is she or is he just trying to, like, insult her? I got the sense that he was just insulting he her. He was insulting her. And it was also, like, it's a connection of the things that he does with Mikey afterwards. That it's something that he's done repeatedly to people. To make them feel inferior and, like, then end up being under his thumb. Uh... And so the, the, well, I'm talking about that scene with Nelly. Cause I feel like that's a moment in the movie where there could be a lot of viewers where the film loses them. But I think remembering that it was a woman who wrote and directed this is an important thing. Yeah. Because what Elaine May is doing is she's communicating a truth about her own experience as a woman in this place in New York in these neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's almost like indicating that even if maybe it didn't happen to her, it probably happened to someone that she knew. And it's also when we talk about her being a woman in improv, we're not talking about like 1990s or 2000s improv. We're talking like deep within like what the 1950s and 60s. Where was where improv was still associated with theater in general. I mean, there's still improv yeah. in all theater, but when people hear improv today, they think improv comedy more yeah, often than Yeah, and it's not. also yeah. the fact that it was like heavily male She's going into, like, writing mostly male. Her companion is a man, like, her best, like... Her collaborator. Her yeah. collaborator. And it's this understanding that she has watched these relationships go on and then affect women. And probably men have, like, unabashedly told her this stuff, assuming she wouldn't end up collecting them to make stories. She sees the worst in them and exposes it. Like, Heartbreak Kid... She's showing you the worst of this person that like in a movie would have highlighted and thought, well, isn't he charming? He's just following his heart. And it's here. It's like, this is a corrupt person. This is a horrible person who doesn't value his relationships. Uh, because I, that scene, it was, it's a very uncomfortable scene. I don't think it be, it's like right on the edge of sexual assault. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Nelly is consenting, but there is deep apprehension around that it's consent. Under it's the guise of of asking him, "Say that you love me. Say that you love me," while he's trying to have sexual relationships with her while Mikey is in the like, kitchen. In the kitchen. That's an like this is an open door kind of apartment. So he's like, yeah, there's witnessed, it's all one big room essentially. Uh, like he's witness to after like Nikki kind of like, or is it does she have a kid who's asleep in the bed? Is that what it is? No, no, okay. Um, after like she's trying to have a conversation with the three of them, she's talking about how much she cares about politics, how much she reads. She's been watching the news to keep up with, uh, she keeps calling Indochina, but Vietnam, but it like. But Nikki just disregards her as being dumb. Like she's a dumb bimbo that you put your penis in and just get it over with. Well, it's Mikey's character is interesting because he's trying to engage with her on these topics. He's very uncomfortable in the situation. He already knows what's going to happen, but he plunges in because he thinks that Nikki is maybe telling him the truth, but it's not. Well, but then after Nikki is finished and then he coerces Mikey to go be with her. Yeah, after T tells her, oh, no, Mikey, I'll make Mikey leave. Don't worry. And it's one thing that I've found so well done about that scene is the sort of unpredictable menace of that scene is where it's it's just like this guy's saying something and then other things are happening. And when you start to see it from Annie's point or Nellie's point of view, how dangerous a situation like that must feel. Yes. Because you're like, are these guys going to like fucking rape me and kill me? Like, what is about to happen? Because my Nikki's Nikki's manic because he's being hunted by the mob. And so he's just doing things. Yeah, he's manic. And he's also like he's suspicious of Mikey. He's trying to like unveil what's happening, show himself right while also trying to cling to his friend. And then Mikey goes in and you think. Because of the nature of the movies that we've watched in the past, Mikey's going to be like, don't worry, I'm not going to do anything. But Mikey does do what, like, Nikki has implied to do and erupts into anger. He smacks because he tries to kiss Nellie and then she bites his lip. Yeah. And then he just, like, physically assaults her. And then, like, Nikki starts yelling at her, like, why isn't she doing what Mikey wants her to do? And then keeps talking about how she slept with all his friends and all this. But the, the implication to me was that Nikki is not around very often, and this woman has every right to live her life. Well, it's not even that. We find out later on when he goes back to her, like she tells him, They told me oh, yeah. that you said that you sent them here to do that. Yeah. And then they told me it was you that said it. I didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. They will confirm it to you. They all know you're liars and you're bringing men to my apartment, like basically putting her in danger to be raped. Yeah. And like I said, that this is a sequence where you, the audience, you might lose them. But I think, once again, you have to remember this is from a female perspective. It's a woman writing about men. Yeah. And so she's being, uh, I think she's being as even-handed as possible, but she's also bringing a level of honesty to a male-centered story that you don't get when a man writes it, typically. Yeah, because what happens is we have the devoted mistress, right? The one that will do anything that her like her man tells her to, and then the embittered wife. Well, let's talk about the scene with Annie where he goes to visit her, or, yeah. or not Annie, but Jan, who's played by Joyce Van Patten. Uh, and I know I've probably seen her in things, 
but wow, was her performance in this movie so good. It's one scene, but it's one of those to me where it felt so painfully authentic. Yeah. She didn't feel like she was acting. She felt like she was this woman who's been woken up in the middle of the night while she's staying with her mother, separated from her husband, has a five-month-old baby, and this fucking asshole has shown up. Yeah. And she's just so tired and done with him. Yeah. And just sort of also knowing... uh, I like it also gives you another layer of the story to make you understand why Nikki is in the situation that he's in. Like, you understand why she left. Yeah, because it's like, with Mikey, he's being like, oh, they just turned on me. And then with his wife, she's like, well, that's what happens when you steal money from these people. Yeah, like, he got himself in this situation. And, like, that she's like, you're always like this. And how she's like, you just get into, uh, like, you just can't be happy. You can't, like, just settle with what you have. And, like, how... He's kind of like, well, just let me see the kid. And she's like, just do whatever the fuck you want. You're going to, if I say yes or no, it won't matter. Because it's understanding if she says no, he is still the victim. He, oh, you are against me. How horrible. You, you're such a bitch. And if she said yes, it's like, oh, well, that means we're back together. Like that's, you're giving me a way in. And um, she's just kind of like fed up. She's like, you're going to do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, I love that where she's like, you're going to hit me. Just go ahead and do it. It was sort of like, get whatever it is out of your system, leave, and then we can all go back to bed. Yeah. Uh, And I just found like that little performance to be one of the, and it's a film that's full of little performances like that, where it's just so strong. Uh, such a, And it's, you can tell that Elaine May did such a good job in choosing who would play those parts. And giving them the correct instruction as to what to do next. Well, and then also probably that improvisational space to like, have this argument and we're, we'll cut around the parts that don't work and we'll find the things that yeah, do. Yeah, and I did like, it's such a huge contrast between like Mikey and his wife, Annie. Annie is like, I don't know what my life would have been had I not met you. My life is so much better because we're together. Like she is enamored with him. She loves him. Well, he goes, she she loves when I tell her stories about my child. Don't you love when I tell you stories about and my like child? And like she, and, but it's this, he comes home so conflicted that when he's like, well, do I, do I say, when I talk, do I say things twice? And she's like, I don't really notice those things. And he's like, well, you should notice. And it is this anger of it being like to be noticed in a weird fucking way is to be loved. Right. Cause he's like, Oh, Nikki does love me. But it just was never a good love. Well, that's one of the things where I think the film is about how friendships end, even though it's a gangster movie. And it's Elaine May acknowledging that a friendship ending can be necessary, but that doesn't mean it isn't rife with pain and suffering and anguish. Yeah, and it's this interesting thing that, like, if you were, like, I like The Godfather. It was a great film. But I don't feel like it shows the complexity of one having to deal with the fact that he's going to, like, decide that he's going to have his brother killed. Uh, oh, in part two? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Spoiler for all those out there who don't know about Godfather Part 2. If you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a weird. Yeah, uh, you should have watched Godfather Part 2 already. 
but then to have a film that is just exclusively about a man that is basically marked for death and his friend is participating in and that. his friend is participating it and then also the weight that is coming with it because by by the end like mikey's just done mikey's like whatever fucking happens to nikki is not my fucking problem like he wants to be done with it but the guilt is still lingering there as he's trying to have a conversation with his wife who's so glad that he's home one thing i want to know is this isn't new york Okay. I look, it's Philadelphia. That's where it is. I think I might have said something earlier about uh, New, well, New York. The, he's a New Yorker and she's a New Yorker. Oh, yeah, the, the actors are. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah. film itself is at Philadelphia. Um, one thing I wanted to note was that I think Elaine May was also, as a woman who sort of was in her 20s, I think in like the 1950s, mm-hmm. late early, early 60s, so she was at this age where she was around men of a similar age at those times. And I think she was also doing a lot of observing of male friendship outside yeah. of women being involved. Just like, what do two guys look like when they're just hanging out? Mm-hmm. And how do these men create these sort of toxic feedback loops with this sort of – there's like, can men – be in each other's company and there not be some sort of like rivalry or dominance involved. Ooh, that is, that is interesting. Cause I feel like I've witnessed that even with relationships that you had like personal ones where it's just sort of like, you're like, okay, this is not a good relationship. Like you guys are combat. Like this person is combating for dominance and you don't give a fuck, but they just, they're, they want to be the man of the group and how it's, well, and I think that's – well, I was thinking like how I don't have any like male friends really because I have no interest in engaging in that back and forth. I think it's – And I think there's a lot of men that like that's – they don't understand that. They can't – their brains don't comprehend yeah, most, that. like your – any male relationship that you have is accompanied with the spouse or the partner being yeah. male. And it's like this – that it's, it's the bridge, right? It's that understanding. But I think it's – there, I mean, even viewing like the relationships that my brother would have with his friends, like mind you, like my brother has managed to keep a lot of his friendships that he had ever since he was a teenager. But there is this combative nature of who's the smartest, who's the funniest, who's the one that's more willing to do X, who's the one that is like fucking the most girls male friendships um, make a statement you'll see if you agree male friendships are centered around boiling every person involved down to the most reductive label possible yeah and i think it's it this is a movie that could still be like so fucking current because it kind of does anger me when i think about like we've talked about agnes varda and how like because of the lack of like praise for elaine like may may i feel like she could have been something more because i feel like all the stuff that she did a male director would have also have done but still had the fucking gall to be like well i'm still gonna make the best she was the the safety brothers before the safety brothers oh when you think about the heartbreak kid and you think about mikey and nikki I guarantee you those dudes love her movies. Yeah, but they still don't go the lengths that she would go to show like how terrible they treat their women. 
because like i'm sorry it cut like it is it, yeah, it is he is like glorified the, yeah, yeah the mistress is like i love you no matter what meantime the mistress i would, I would is say like, in, in good time you see more of that with robert pattinson's character the way he interacts with um oh that i can't teenage uh the teenage black girl where he's like using her and being yeah. real weird and then it's uh that actress who was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and I can't think of her name. Yeah, she's a little... Uh, I forgot her name. I think she's one of those, like, three-name people. Blank, blank, blank. Uh, her... Was she married to it's, Greta it's, Gerwig's husband? Yeah, I can, I, can tell you, I can tell you so many facts about this woman, I can't name her. Her dad was killed by John Landis when they were making the Twilight Zone movie, oh. but I can't think of her name, right? And I'll look it up afterwards and go, yeah, fucking of course, it's her name. Uh, why did I bring her up? Oh, yeah, good time. Like the way she's this older woman that he's kind of been sleeping with and is trying to get money from her to bail his brother out. I feel like that movie and then maybe Daddy Longlegs, which the Safties based on their own father. Those are where you're seeing that kind of Cassavetes, Elaine May exploration of like men who are just gross. Yeah. And they just need to stop. Like they're just on this conveyor belt of dysfunction and they yeah. just. Like you need to get off the conveyor belt. It's killing you, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um. What did you think? There were, there's also a film with like little tiny scenes that kind of stand out. I was thinking of M. Emmett Walsh has a short scene as a bus driver. Yeah. Who has an altercation with Nikki, and so like a scene like that, I can tell they don't really script it. Yeah. It's more a premise of in this scene, this needs to happen. Mm -hmm. We don't know what you're going to say in your argument, but the argument needs to escalate to this point, and then this happens. What did you think, like, looking at that scene as an example of Elaine May's direction, her directorial style? It, it under, like, she understood where she needed to put the camera. She understood the tension that needed to build during this moment. The actors understood how far they need to take it in order to show the desperation of this person. Well, like how petty it was like yeah the whole fight was over something completely unnecessary yeah it was just nikki refusing to exit the bus in the way that you're supposed to exit the bus yeah like the bus like driver even was like i saw you smoking i'm not gonna let you go out the front and he's just sort of like well because you're not supposed to go out the front and but you're not supposed to smoke either i know but like yeah he was sort of i'm drawing the line at this yeah and nikki i think it divorces about nikki's characters nikki will not let anyone draw the line with him so it's no surprise that his marriage has fallen apart, right? Yeah. Because he won't respect the boundaries anyone else puts up. Mm -hmm. And also why Mikey so easily betrayed him Yeah, was because he's not known as a guy that you can depend on. No. And Nikki wants to be able to depend on Mikey. And we can see like the links that Mikey will go early on in the movie where he goes across the street to the little diner to get the milk and the cream. Yeah. And the, the guy working at the diner says they don't give the cream out for free. You have to order coffee. So he's like, well, fine. I'll order 15 coffees. Fill it up with and, and he goes, just give me the creamer then. And the guy goes to make the coffees. And then Peter Falk jumps over the counter and like strangles this guy. Because he's so desperate to get the thing that his friend needs. I did notice, which I don't know if like this is uh, true or not. Like they use one of the extras that was in that one. That film, you could barely see her, but I could tell because of her hairstyle. It was this black woman, mm -hmm. and she was used in the at the bar. Theater. Oh, in the movie in theater. The movie yeah, theater that doesn't later. surprise me. And it's just like to me, I had no problems with it because I love seeing her face, and yeah. they did very good well of like blurring her out. But her hairstyle was so distinct that I just wondered if she was like there are certain faces that I like that I want to use again. Well, and then there was it was a little scene, uh, 
with the candy store. And there's a detail in there that I loved because it showed me and this because at first I was like, oh, is this like just a real person? No, he's an actor. Martin Wolfson. He's a stage actor, like one of those like old, you know, Broadway stage play actor kind of guys. And Nikki comes in. I think it's Nikki to get candy. Yeah. He's just buying a bunch of candy because he's manic. Right. So he's just doing things. And he goes and he's like, why is there a lot no ice cream? Yeah. And uh, he goes, because it's a candy store. He goes, what kind of candy store doesn't have ice cream? He goes, this one. Uh, but that candy store man, when he's like working on the shelves. Nikki comes in. He immediately goes around to the other side of the counter where you would expect him to be with the cash register. Puts his hand into this hole and it just has his hand on a revolver the whole time. And that little tiny bit communicated so much to me about that character who doesn't have a name, no. but it tells you something about this time, this place, this guy, this store. Well, yeah, and it's, it's all in just that one move of just, I put my hand on the gun when it's late at night and a man comes in by himself. Yes. And the thing is like, Nikki is manic and the man. And a dangerous person. And the funny thing is like the man keeps talking to him very normal, very yeah. cordially. Yeah. But he's kind of showing, I have a gun. You seem a little crazy. If you make a wrong move, I will shoot you. Uh, But yeah, it's it's a movie where you could see that she was building the film as she went. Yeah. I think it was one of those where she knew the inciting situation. She knew some moments along the way, like the cemetery, the bus, uh, the movie theater. The, the fact that like they never get to any place on time because of Nikki's shifting all the all the way. Uh, and I think she knew the ending of the movie. Uh, when you look at this entire piece, what do you feel that like? What is like the theme of the movie? What is the thing we're supposed to walk away from this film with? I I mean, it is the pain of a re- like friendships ending. And the betrayal of what happens when you allow that to occur. What's well, like the finality of it? Yes. It's it, this isn't just. It's not just that they're never going to see each other again. It's that Mikey can't ever run into Nikki again. That's just not a possibility. Yeah. And it's one of the things that Mikey mentions. I don't think you brought this up. Was when he's talking to his wife. He talks about how all his friends are dead. All the guys he grew up with from back then are yeah, dead. Yeah, because I think even Nikki re- remarks on it when they're in the cemetery. How like everybody's dead, and this is and all- these are guys, and they're what like late forties, early fifties. They're not old men. And I think it's it, this indication that the field that they both work in is a dangerous one that leads them to be dead pretty soon. Well, like whatever. I don't know if we ever get a sense of what Mikey does. Uh, I think he just has to do it. I think he worked whatever capacity the business is owned by the mob. Yeah. And Nikki worked in a bank. Cause they know about somebody coming in or it's like a bookies or something. Uh, yeah. It's supposed to be a bookie died. Uh, yeah. And, so, and like the details are where you really have to kind of pay attention. I don't think I did a very good job paying attention to that part, I think but I still got the sense of like what was happening. Yeah. It was still obscure enough to just be like, you are like, okay, they have to be working with the mob to some extent but it also like this interesting thing that for example um like ned beady and like is waiting around for nikki because he's the hitman but he doesn't feel like a professional because he's yeah. calling the head guy and the guy was like well just don't do the job then and then suddenly he's like oh no 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 i'll figure it out don't worry he's not gonna get paid if he doesn't do the job but it's That's also the like yeah. this 
like the way that they're talking to him are kind of like, then you're not up to it. And then we don't trust you. And we'll just get someone else to do it. Yeah. We'll pay them the money. Uh, yeah, it's it's a film that, like the I could describe it as it feels like a wounded animal hobbling through the night. Yeah. Until it just gets to the place where somebody puts it out of its misery. You're really poetic in the past two films. <laughs> that well, writing is really going off on you, huh? Are you are you are you impressed? Am I'm I, so impressed. Am I having an effect on you? Yeah, I am a poet at heart. <laughs> like a withering body on a hospital bed, yeah. and then this, like, okay, man. Well, I feel like that's good films evoke that in people. Yeah. Like when you watch a sh- when I watch fucking Wonka. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to come out of it going, oh, it was like a blast of candy or something. Like, <laughs> No, it was boring as shit. I think in my Wonka review, I referred to it as like, uh, it felt as awful as eating cotton candy in that it dissolves quickly and it just leaves you with this horrible taste in your mouth. Uh, so, yeah, I would say Mikey and Nikki, is, it's a challenging film to watch because she refuses to adhere to the types of rhythms and beats we expect from crime movies yeah and it's hyper character centric yes and because of that that's what makes it so good and it's both of these films mikey and nikki and all that jazz are great reminders of why we need to look back to like the 70s the 60s i think on letterboxd my top three decades are 40s 50s and 70s and I just think there are that was when American cinema it wasn't as good necessarily as what was coming out of Europe, which was light years ahead. But American cinema has never been better than it was, I think, in those decades. And ever since then, when the '80s came along and sort of the financialization of film started to happen, and movie and movie production companies started being bought by like large global corporations, we lost that. And now we have people arguing about you know barbie's director and star not getting nominated for oscars when i'm over here going like who gives a shit about the oscars anymore like an award that's been given to movies that like have are absolutely worthless in the last few years but would you recommend mikey and nikki to a general audience i think i would i think it's they got to strengthen up a little bit when it comes to their movie viewing i think this was worth the watch yeah i think if you already like stuff like the safty brothers movies i think this is like a natural yeah, and peter falk is so good yeah he's so good i was telling seth earlier as i, I feel like i'm talking to the audience like they're friends <laughs> uh, i was telling seth barbara <laughs> i was telling seth earlier barbara um on how like all i knew about peter falk was like colombo and like the few stuff that i watched with colombo because we ended up watching a few episodes like he- i think he, that was easy for him i think colombo yeah. he was able to phone in that was but you've seen him in under a woman under the influence he's, in this what he's he- just so good and this one was kind of like this acknowledgement he's like yeah i'm not a good looking guy and I well, mean- also uh wings of desire where he plays yeah. himself yes and that way he's he's great at playing a sad sack yes but Wings of Desire didn't consider him a sad sack. I but I would say a woman under the influence in this, that sort of like, he's like an old hound dog. Yeah. Where you're just like, oh, can he just rest? <laughs> Poor guy. He's just so worn down. But yeah, uh, Mikey and Nikki, very great film you should check out. 
Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check the show notes for any relevant links to what we talked about, including a link to our website, popcult.blog. Also make sure to subscribe to be notified wherever it is you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified when new episodes come up. If you visit popcult.blog right now, you're going to be seeing uh, in this coming week, we're going to wrap up our Palestinian film series with one last movie. And because it is a January to February week, we're going to transition into our February theme, which will run all month long. And that is going to be movies about movies. So sort of what the title says, films that talk about some aspect of filmmaking. We're going to be kicking that series off with All About Eve. And that will continue with films like Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt, uh, Franz Trois Truffauts' Day for Night, many other movies as the month goes on. If you enjoy what we do here on the podcast and over on popcult.blog, we would like you to support us over on Patreon if you're able to. We have lots of different reward levels, and with those different tiers, you get access to different things. I want to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt, who donate at the writer's room level. That's $10 a month, and with that, they get access to everything, plus... They also get to pick one movie a month that I will watch and review. If you do the same, you can even include your own thoughts in that. No matter what level you donate at from, uh, I believe it's the $5 level up, on Patreon, you will get access to our patron podcasts. So far, we have done three six-episode series. We've done The Pitch, where we kind of did a little improv comedy, and Ariana shared some reviews of TV shows she watched that I didn't. We did Double Down, which was a series where we looked at movies that Siskel and Ebert had given two thumbs down to that kind of surprised us, watched the movies for ourselves, and then give our own verdict. And then most recently, we wrapped up Screenplay, which was a uh, GM-less, player-driven tabletop roleplay game where we kind of built the world up from scratch. We'll be coming back to do another season of Screenplay in March using a new roleplay system, very different tone and style. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so keep your ears open for that. Well, until next time, you keep listening, we'll keep watching.